This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. Today we'll hear from one of the most highly regarded and acclaimed photographers to ever cover the White House, David Hume Kennerly. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner, a former official White House photographer to President Gerald Ford. He has more than 50 major magazine covers to his credit. Then we'll talk 2012 politics, Donald Trump, and the missteps of the White House communication shop that could be costly with the American public. Joining the conversation is a man POTUS listeners know very well. Tom Mosloom of the M Network. But of course, I'm joined by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. And Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration. And it is great to have you here. Great to be with you as always, Adam. It's been a great week as usual on the Polyoptics Hustings. Begun, of course, with the helicopter trip from New York to Manchester, New Hampshire of Trump One, the helicopter that brought Donald Trump to New Hampshire. It is beyond my greatest uh, hope and imagination that this week could have turned out this way. Donald Trump is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, I don't mind saying that I think that uh, Donald Trump as a presidential campaign uh, is fun and it could be very persuasive, but I also don't mind saying that Donald Trump as a true presidential candidate is really a joke. It's a joke before it gets told on evening news, and uh, he doesn't have the credibility uh, on the issues, and in, in his, his history is what is becoming uh, the, the great hamstring of, of this would-be campaign. But the optics of it and the helicopter flights and the constant media attention, Josh, is just phenomenal. Well, in a week when a very serious potential candidate like Haley Barber decides to bow out and uh, leaves us really with so few declared presidential candidates in the Republican field, at least he's filling the void. Uh, we also know that when a guy like Donald Trump is port, uh, makes motions about potentially running for president, he too has ulterior motives about keeping his Q rating high for the benefit that he gets from keeping Apprentice going at high ratings on NBC. So <laughs> none, of, right. none of these headlines hurt the brand that is Donald Trump. That's exactly right. And, and Josh, you've let the cat out of the bag. Uh, one of the most important and one of the most storied and uh, revered photographers of multiple generations. David Hume Kennerly is with us here on Polyoptics. I got to know Kennerly in the 1990s when his assignments brought him back to Washington and points beyond. Truth was, I thought he was a pain in the ass. I worked days, weeks even, to craft the composition of what I imagined for presidential events and placing photographers exactly where I wanted them to create the angles I thought through was a key ingredient to success. But Kennerly made me a failure. He knew the White House, and certainly his craft, a lot better than I did. In the end, Kennerly's success was my success. And on Polyoptics today, we're extremely honored to have an icon of photojournalism on the show. David Hume Kennerly, welcome to Polyoptics. Josh, good to talk to you again. David, when was the first time you found yourself with a camera in your hands? Yeah, I'm not really sure, but it has to go back. I found there's some old family snapshots that I took back in the... um late 50s, so I would have been, you know, like 12, 13 years old. And then bring us through to the point where suddenly you find yourself in Washington, D.C. as a member of the press pool covering Richard Nixon. Uh, By the way, that was a startling admission 
uh, by you as an advanced person that you didn't always uh, uh, weren't able to roll the photographers the way you wanted to. Yeah, well, you know, hey, David, it's Adam <laughs> Belmar. I tell you, it's a stunning admission, uh, perhaps, but uh, not for a, uh, a more learned and mature Josh King who's not afraid to say that you were a pain in the ass and that your success was his success. Well, i got to tell you something. My, the, the best people I ever worked with on the road, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, or the advanced guys, I think their mentality is more closely attuned to photographers than anybody else, because they have to go into a situation, put it together, so when the president shows up, uh, it's all in in place. It's a huge pressure job, and the people who do it really like it. And and photographers and advanced people, most most of them anyway, uh, have always gotten along well. It's a real symbiotic relationship. and um, quite frankly, uh, the photographers that I know have been doing this forever have always uh, really appreciated what they do. So it's a two-way street. Um, but you know, my trajectory into the White House really was uh, getting there mainly because I didn't want to be there. Uh, I felt like one of those reluctant candidates. But uh, when I was 23 years old, I had my first ride on Air Force One, which was during the Nixon period, um, and it was, uh, I was the UPI photographer, which meant I was a pool, traveling press pool, and I was a young guy, and that was supposed to be really where it was at, and, and, uh, but all I wanted to do at that time was to get over to Vietnam, so I basically threw over the job of covering the White House for UPI to go to Vietnam, which to me was a much bigger story and was the story of my generation. And and what did you have to do to prepare to get on what whatever transport brought you from the U.S. to Saigon, and and suddenly you find yourself decked out in uh, in BDUs and cameras around your neck? Did you have any prepare, preparation to have this kind of an experience? Well, no, I didn't. In fact, uh, uh, one of the shocking things that happened to me right before I left, the guy I was going over to replace. Uh, was killed in a, when their helicopter was shot down. Uh, Kent Potter of UPI uh, was, had been covering the war for a long time. Um, Larry Burroughs, who was with Life, was a hero of mine. Andre Hewitt of AP. Uh, Shimamoto of Newsweek. Four great photographers were killed. And quite frankly, uh, that really scared me. I mean, it, it brought it home what I was getting into. And when I got over there, uh, it took a while to settle in, but quite frankly, I liked it a lot. <laughs> and I, I ended up spending almost, over two years in Vietnam, mainly covering combat, and uh, uh, involuntarily left. Uh, in fact, it was not a, a job where anybody held a gun to my head to make me do it. But it was an exciting time. I was a young guy. The pictures were fantastic. It was, uh, I thought, meaningful work, uh, as I do today. And a good friend of mine was just killed in Libya, Chris Hondros, uh, uh, recently. And uh, there, fortunately, are still people who go out and do this kind of thing to bring back images that the world wouldn't see otherwise. It's remarkable as uh, as we take a look more recently of coverage uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And clearly the U.S. government has uh, also altered its game plan for uh how they work with uh, photographers and journalists in country covering conflict. Um, 
and a lot of that I think was born out of the experience of Vietnam and the uh, the images that you captured and and what it ended up saying about that conflict and and the arbiter of truth was really uh, through your lens and others. Uh, what do you think about how this has matured and and where we are today covering conflict like that? Well, I you know. In Vietnam, we could go out anywhere we wanted, anytime. Uh, uh, we were registered with the armed forces there. As it, it actually had an equivalent rank of major, which was basically uh, for catching rides on helicopters as a priority thing. But there was really no control over what we were doing. But after looking back at this so many years later, it wasn't really the journalists and photographers who lost the war in Vietnam. It was the government. And anytime you're sending 50,000 Americans home in body bags, you're bound to get a little bad PR out of that. And that wasn't something that, uh, uh, I mean, we were photographing the war, but it's, I think that's a little overstated. And now it's, it's really hard to cover American operations. Uh, the, the military who used to be an incredibly good friend to, photographers particularly and journalists in general i think is way more gun shy and and it's really too bad because i don't know any photographers who really go out to make a point about the good or bad of it all but really just want to cover the story david you get the pulitzer prize in 1972 you're back in washington uh covering politics you cover the resignation of spiro agnew um I was watching last week a documentary done by John Berdar for National Geographic, the president's photographer, and it showed this amazing piece of video of the moments right before Richard Nixon submits his resignation, and he basically bans his photographer, Ollie Atkins, from the room. <laughs> and you are next up as Gerald Ford's official photographer. How did the role change with you? Well, uh, you know, I actually dug that video out. Uh, um, I'm, I don't want to sound like Donald Trump uh, making Obama release his birth certificate, but I found that video because I was doing research on Ollie for a, uh, a show I was putting together for uh, on on American presidential photography. And uh, quite frankly, what Ollie had to go through was something I wasn't going to do. And the night that President Ford took office, he'd asked me to stay after some other people had left his Alexandria residence the night he was sworn in, and he wanted to talk about the, the White House photographer's job, and uh, which really was, for me, I mean, I'm a young guy. I was 27 years old, and uh, I'm sitting there talking to the president. <laughs> I mean, he's been there for like eight hours, and uh, even though I knew him really well, but I, I still, everything changes, as you know, Josh. When a person becomes the president of the United States, it's like, Wow. You know, it's a it's a whole different ball game, but I knew for sure I I couldn't be the Ollie Atkins, uh, the next guy being told he couldn't go into the Oval Office. So uh, I told President Ford I would take the job um, under two conditions. One is that I work directly for him, not for the press secretary or the chief of staff. And number two, I had total access to everything. And so you didn't ask for too much, then, David. <laughs> You know, he looked at me, and he was puffing on his pipe, and he said, you don't want Air Force One on the weekends? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but, you know, it was important to me. I, I, was, I was a Time Magazine starver. I had a terrific job, 
and I was not going to go to the White House to sit outside the door. It, it made no sense to me. And my relationship with President Ford was extremely good and with the whole family. And he gave me the green light. And quite frankly, that was it for the whole time. I mean, I, I, I had the access. I didn't report to the chief of staff who became Donald Rumsfeld, later Dick Cheney, um, or Ron Nesson, the White House press secretary. I just I did my own thing. I had my own operation. And it was unprecedented, even before or since. Nobody's really had that kind of photo power in the White House, but uh, uh, it worked out really well. All I wanted to do was take pictures, and I didn't want uh, to constantly be battling uh, some secretary telling me I couldn't go in the office like a lot of the other photographers have to do. I have a question for you, David. How many other people were on your team? I had three other photographers working for me, plus uh, an office staff. It was not a particularly big operation. Uh, the At the time, the uh, processing duties fell to the Army or the White House uh, Communications Agency, the military, and uh, anybody who handled uh, film, uh, were, were, all of them were cleared for top secret like I was. Uh, my photographers were also uh, cleared, I mean, what you have to be to work in the White House in general. But um, uh, it was a great operation, and, and I think that the document of the Ford presidency, which, by the way, you could, if you you could still get this book online, it's called "Extraordinary Circumstances: The Presidency of Gerald R. Ford," published by the University of Texas. Um, really, is uh, what I would say a two and a half year photo essay about uh, the Ford presidency and about all the people who were in it, including Rumsfeld and Cheney and Kissinger and. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, and, and an array of world leaders. I, in fact, I call them the, uh, the Despotic World Leaders League. Uh, everybody from Ceausescu to Franco to Tito to Deng Xiaoping, uh, we met them all. And uh, it was a very exciting time in our history. David, I'm interested in what you think of the relationship. You mentioned how good your relationship was with President Ford and his family. I'm interested in the relationship back then between yourself and the colleagues with whom you shot pictures in Vietnam, who were working in Washington, and compare that and contrast it to today. And Pete Sousa has your job for President Obama, and Pete has so much more technology at his disposal than you did, so that he's publishing photo essays and uploading his pictures to Flickr, uh, at hundreds at a time, and it really is a, it seems to me, on the one hand, a threat to the natural job of photojournalist working in Washington, and on the other hand, a wonderful backdoor picture of the White House such that we only got to see way after the fact when you published your pictures. Well, I agree with the first part of what you said, and, and uh, uh, unfortunately, and, I, and I'm a big fan of Pete, so he and I are good friends and colleagues and all that, but because of the technology, because of the way things have changed, there's, like you say, there's this constant stream of photos coming out of the White House. And in, in the case of the ones taken by Sousa, particularly as the official White House driver, they're very good. But it does kind of squeeze out anybody, any outsiders coming in. Uh, you get the feeling that you've seen these pictures already. And, and, uh, uh, but that also reflects the diminishing 
capability of the American press corps, I think, uh, in terms of visual presentation. The magazines are, are not the same as they used to be. There's no Life magazine. Uh, Time is still doing well. Newsweek is uh, under a new banner. But um, uh, just to go back to my time, I was the best-case scenario for photographers because I opened the door to the Oval Office to dozens of outside photographers, anybody from people you would know, Josh, like Dirk Halstead and Wally McNamee with Newsweek, uh, Eddie Adams with AP, on and on and on, where they could come in and take their own pictures, uh, which was my preference. I mean, I never liked releasing photographs unless there were absolutely no other way around it. I, I really wanted other people to do their own work, to just show the guy uh, in, a, in, in a, the way that photographers see things. And, and uh, so I, my relationship with, the, with my colleagues could not have been better, and, and no one uh, since then has ever had the, the power to really say, sure, come on in. It, it has to go through layer after layer. I mean, Josh, you worked at the Clinton White House. I mean, there were 23 people who could shoot down a request like that. And uh, Bob McNeely, who was uh, Clinton's photographer, is a, a close friend of mine, is a great photographer, I think did a tremendous job. But he couldn't just say, Kennerly, come on over, you know, and spend a couple hours in the Oval Office with the president. He, he was not able to do it, although he did uh, get me in there on occasion, but it had to go through uh, all sorts of leaps and, um, and hoops to, to do it. And then you had a nervous Nelly like me looking over your shoulder, wondering if you're going to capture the president at the wrong time and not exactly sure where it would end up. And you know, that... Actually, one of my favorite Clinton moments was, uh, and he, he was a good guy to photograph, and you know, I'm like, he's just like a, a year older than me, so we have the same generation the first time that had happened in, in my time. But uh, he had uh, been out in the Rose Garden talking about a good economic news, and somebody asked him a question about who was paying all the legal bills for his staff <laughs> about the, uh, I'm sure, the Lewinsky matter. And he came in the Oval Office, and it was supposed to be a great moment, you know, a meeting with all the sec secretaries of labor and all these people, a little schmooze fest. I was in there already waiting for him. He came in, he was ricocheting off the wall because Clinton had a, a, a big temper. And um, all these people are just falling all over themselves trying to get out of the Oval Office. And I was wanting to make pictures. And I can't remember who the aide was, uh, but he said, I think it's time for you to go. I said, no, this is really good. He says, you got to get out of here. <laughs> yeah, the I think it was time for you to go was uh, a little bit more than a suggestion, I'm sure. No, no, it was, yeah. Hey, I, David. I, I know how to play the game. I, I want to ask you to... Uh, delve in just a little deeper into the compare and contrast. I served uh, in the Bush administration in the same role that Josh did in the in the Clinton administration as the production chief, uh, deputy communications director. And one of the things that technology has brought to us, uh, and obviously uh, to a lesser degree in the Bush administration than we, we see with Pete Susan now, that narrative of the president's activities and, and what we see of him through that pr official f White House photographer lens, almost everything is coming out. And you used to uh, say that you were loath to put out a picture um, that that couldn't be made by a, a journalist. Uh, you were capturing moments that most people didn't get to see, certainly not in a contemporaneous way. Um, are we 
hurting journalists or serving the president better by uh, getting uh, this litany of pictures out on a daily basis the way that we do now? Well, <clears throat> you were with which Bush? I was with George W. Bush. Uh, oh, I remember him. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, and George worked closely with Eric, uh, Eric, Eric Draper. Draper. Yeah, who's a, was a fine photographer. Um, one of the things, uh, George W. Bush, whom I knew uh, pretty well, and I've spent uh, you know, a fair amount of time around him, I think he really liked photographers. He just didn't like having them around. And uh, <laughs> the personalities of Trevor very much suited him. But he, as you know, I mean, he was a, a guy who was sort of easily distracted. And, and uh, in a meeting, and I experienced this firsthand, I know, if something was really tense and it was just a small little group and somebody was in there taking pictures, uh, it would throw him off a little bit. He, he was not, um, he, he was not the, the best guy to work for. Uh, uh, as a photographer, although Eric had tremendous access and did a really good job, but he was there day in and day out. Um, I don't know. I, I, your question is a good one. I, I think releasing pictures day in and day out, uh, on one hand, it gives the impression of transparency, but I'm not really sure it delivers that. And and I, you know, I'm a big believer in less is more, and, I, and I'm not sure that uh, uh, releasing pictures on a daily hourly basis are, are are really serving the president that well i i happen to agree with you on that i mean i'm a big fan of the ability to see what during my white house experience were pictures that were blown up into jumbos and they were around the white house right, and they right. they really served a great purpose as an internal communication uh so that people who didn't travel with the boss could see uh, where he was and, and all of the, the fruit of their labor, so to speak. But one of the things that strikes me as being uh, not necessarily well served for the president of the United States is this idea that transparency is reigning and everything's going out. I almost wonder whether, and Josh, you might know better, uh, whether there's any filter on Sousa in this Flickr stream. Uh, you know, when, when Eric Draper had that access that you talked about, David, um, I can tell you because I was a part of it, the decision to put photos out did not rest in the, in the White House photographer's office. It was clearly in the communication shop, and we were right. very certain about what images we put out and, and when and to whom. Well, now, that, that you just hit it on the head of why I wanted photographers from the outside to take their own pictures. I mean, I was really uh, uh, adamant about that because I, I thought, you know, if you're the in-house driver, even though you've got great journalistic credentials like I did, like Eric was a AP photographer, Pete Souza of the Chicago Tribune, but the bottom line is you're working for the man. And, you know, that even though I know Souza's pictures are honest, that there is a shadow of a doubt there, and, and uh, uh, he is not covering it as a journalist per se. He's on the payroll of the United States government, and he's putting out pictures that are he is not approving. I can guarantee you that. I don't know for a hundred percent, but I'm, I would bet anything. Like you, you know, the communications arm controls the horizontal and the vertical about what's going on with the president. So, you know, Pete's pictures. I know are honest photos, but there is, the fact is he works for the president. You know, he's not a journalist. It's like the press secretary doesn't work for ABC, NBC, and the New York Times. 
they work, he works for the President of the United States. So, you know, there's just that little bit, like, uh, it would be better served to let more outside drivers come in when possible, not like they're standing on the desk every day in the Oval Office, but there's got to be some balance there. Right. I, I think net-net, we're better off today for what Pete is doing, really because the President of the United States is not Jerry Ford and his official photographer is not David Hume Kennerly. Because people, because as you said, David, other working photographers are not nearly given the kind of access that, that you gave a guy like Dirk or Wally. And, and what we have instead as a public is when there are decisions made about uh, NATO airstrikes in Libya or what to do with Egypt, at least we get a picture, even if it's one culled out of a hundred, of what is happening and who is in the Situation Room, and we're That's seeing... right, I agree with you. I think that Pete... Now, that was the other thing. I'm glad you brought that up. When it comes down to secret meetings, obviously outsiders who aren't cleared can't do it, and, and that is a perfect uh, time to release photos. It's perfect. But it's... Uh, um, and, I, and like I say, Pete's a hell of a good photographer. I, I really admire his work, and, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of his... I just had, because I'm on the other side of the fence, and if I were sitting there tomorrow for Time Magazine and say, okay, you can spend a day with Barack Obama, I'm going to think, what can I do that hasn't already been taken? I mean, that, that's just a photographer thing more than a, uh, you know, a big policy statement. It's like, uh, that's a challenge. Even I, lo- I love the, things differently. I know? love that you just said that, David, because, you know, I was a, a journalist before I went. Uh, into the White House and, you know, as a producer for ABC News for a long time at Good Morning America and later with This Week with George Stephanopoulos, that was really the trick. What new can we do? I mean, if you're going to duplicate other people's efforts or, you know, bring your cameras to the same place to recreate something that people have seen, you've lost some of the uh, novelty of of having exclusive access to the president. Well, also, by the way, with, with television... What you get there is the is the chief correspondent, whoever's doing the day in the life thing with the president, surgically attached to his hip, and so uh, it is uh, to me that's a, like a show trial. I mean, the, when television goes into a situation like that, and I remember NBC you know, had thirty cameras in there when everything was wired up. Uh, Might have been during the Bush period, actually. Yeah, we it did it. We did it during the uh, NBC did it during the the first. Uh, part of the Bush administration. Happens and, once a term. It does, and, and it, it's sort of like by virtue of being there, you've changed the... It's a one-hour sitcom. I mean, the, the fact of the matter, they're not going to be discussing anything important. It's all walk and talk with the president. Here I am with uh, you know George W. Bush or Barack Obama. The, the thing about still photography is it's one person and a camera... And that person doesn't talk about what he hears. Therefore, you're going to get a much honest, more honest and clearer picture out of a presidency with still photos than you ever will with TV, period. I mean, that's just the way it goes. I mean, it's, uh, there's no question about it. David, just one final question for you. And those of, us, those of you who've been listening to our conversation can see so much, just, and actually it's just the tip of the iceberg of David Hume Kennerly's work at his website, kennerly.com. But as I look through that and surf over the pictures, I see pictures, as we mentioned earlier, of Ali Frazier. I see pictures of Fidel Castro. I see pictures of Leonid Brezhnev. And, and I'm just so 
curious about, as you reflect back on your career, uh, what do you think about the career of the photojournalist that you've been able to live and what it pretends to the decades going forward? Well, that's a great question. I've had that conversation. I'm not so sure that anybody's ever going to be able to, to, you certainly can't duplicate anybody's career because the circumstances are always different. But I was in the heyday of photojournalism where Time Magazine was paying for me almost on a weekly, bi-weekly basis to go to Egypt to see Sadat, uh, to go to Israel with him, to cover stories all around the world. And now stuff is being picked up locally, which means it's not like one person who's getting tasked to do those kind of jobs. So it would be almost impossible now, in an economic sense, for anybody to uh, to range the way I did. Maybe Jim Knockway is doing it a little bit for Time Magazine, and there may be a few others, but pretty much that was the good old days, and not to be repeated, I'm sure. David Hume Kennerly uh, joining us here on Polyoptics on POTUS, uh, Sirius XM Satellite Radio. We could literally go the entire hour with you, uh, <laughs> but time will not allow us to do so. I am so glad that you took the time to speak to us, and we hope that you'll come back. Well, I will. You know, uh, James Earl Jones once said, David Hume Kennerly is like Forrest Gump, except he was really there. And uh, <laughs> when you were really there, that meant that the rest of America could really be there. So uh, thank you for all that you've done, and thank you for uh, being with us, and we'll talk to you again real soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Josh, I loved that conversation with uh, David Hume Kennerly. We're really lucky to have him. But let's turn to the events of the day, the polyoptics at play in the upcoming 2012 presidential race. We've got a new voice uh, on polyoptics, a good friend uh, of ours from past shows here on SiriusXM, Tom Mazloom, or as I like to say, Tom Mazloom, the uh, president of the M Network and a... uh, an expert at uh, messaging and crafting political campaign ads. He's got his own shop, the M Network, down there in Miami. Welcome to the broadcast. Well, thank you, sir. Nice to be here. Uh, you know, one of the things that Josh and I have been talking about this week is the uh, the very interesting elements around 2012. You know, we, we've we had uh, perhaps the, the highlight of the week, Josh, was uh, the president of the United States, he, uh, he finally got down into the weeds and produced a long-form birth certificate. And uh, I think a lot of people think that uh, one Donald Trump really baited him into doing it. Yeah, you know, suddenly, in over the last 48 hours, we've been reintroduced to a wonderful old American term, carnival barker. And that's the, what uh, that's what President Obama inferred Donald Trump was doing and saying that we don't have time for these sideshows and perhaps put it to rest yesterday, but I don't know. What do you think, Moslem? I think they probably had a 15-minute meeting before that press conference to decide what term they were going to use. I think somebody pulled Carnival Barker out, and everybody started laughing and said, that's exactly it. Go. Well, you know, you know it, it's fascinating, uh, Tom. I, I was just reading my New Yorker this week that, that obviously goes to print over the weekend, and Henrik Hertz, Hertzberg's uh, commentary that comes out at the beginning of the week begins like this under the, under the comment trumpery. The presidential candidacy as a joke is a perennial sideshow along the raucous midway of the American political carnival. 
And this ha- this came out several days ago, so you think that some people in the West Wing are probably reading Rick Hertzberg and saying, aha, there's some good imagery, let's use Carnival Barker. You would imagine. Absolutely. I've been in those meetings. I know how that goes down. But listen, um, you know, from my perspective, the fact that this story was able to percolate, able to dominate the headlines and the images... Uh, is probably, and again, this is my opinion only, the fault of only one person. It's Barack Obama's fault. The President of the United States was slow to realize that this was an important issue he needed to put to bed. It's 2011. This came up in 2008. And I understand the politics, and I'm sure you guys will fire back and we can talk about why it was it was nice to have the 2012 candidates on the other side uh, you know, making fools of themselves on this issue. But if this thing was out there and he could have just released it and put it to bed, why he didn't is beyond me until now. Where does the line stop, though, Adam? I mean, does it? are we going to release every file about Roswell we have? Are we going to talk about every accusation we're talking it's, about? It's, it's fun to say that, Tom, but this is a very serious issue for the president. It has sidetracked him more than he knows. It has caused... Uh, uh, this entire birther movement, which, as Josh, I think, uh, sort of referred to, is probably not going to go away anyway. But even though it was not a question in my mind whatsoever, for smart people who started to think maybe there was something there because Donald Trump was commanding headlines, how could they have waited till now to just do this one simple thing? Do you think they could have released it sooner? Josh? Well, uh, I think the whole thing is the bloody. CIA un- hadn't made it up yet, or I, I think the whole thing is bloody unfortunate. <laughs> and and based on what I understand, Bob Bauer or another lawyer had to travel from Washington to Honolulu, and get explicit permission to do something that the state of Hawaii never does, which is release these long form birth certificates. And as uh, as the White House Communications Office had said that during the 2008 campaign, they'd put out the short firm birth birth certificate. And how much? proof do you need? As President Obama told Brian Williams last year, you know, he can't go around every day with his birth certificate pinned to his forehead. The question really is, I mean, and the president asked it, but maybe maybe Adam has a point that it should have come out sooner, but how how much do you want to address something that is as insane as this? Aren't there more in quite, why aren't we examining very closely the president and the administration's uh, job plan? Why aren't we looking more heavily at some of the other initiatives uh, that that he has for the economy? We're looking at a birth certificate. The election's over. Move on. Uh, the election's over, but there's another one to come. And I think that uh, at least from a polyoptics perspective, the tone deafness on this issue for me is extreme. Uh, that somebody had to go to Hawaii on a mission when Air Force One has been traveling there for years, like you could not hitch a ride and dealt with this long ago. Well, he is, was just there on vacation over uh, the, the winter, was That's he not? my <laughs> point. It's inexplicable. It's, but you know what else? And Josh and I sort of were talking about this before the show, and I want to tease this out here. Uh, the White House, I think, has been caught flat-footed on a number of things lately. They may be trivial, and Josh, I think we should talk about them, one of which was one of the most high holy days of Christendom, Easter, came and went without any normal proclamation from the White House. And then when they were asked about it, they laughed about it as if it was a farce. Yeah, you know, I I do think there's some substance there, which is, uh, and it's mostly administrative, Adam. You're absolutely right. I'm not saying this has to do with the president. It's just a reflection on the presidency. Yeah, uh, and you can, again, draw inferences into all of these uh, commissions or omissions uh, and and wonder, you know, who's who's keeping their eye on the calendar for the important things that ought to be 
ought to be noticed because, as you and I both know, and Tom as well, uh, it doesn't cost anything to put out a proclamation. And uh, and the more groups that have their important dates recognized, and certainly Easter is way up there on the list, ought to have its own proclamation on, a, on an annual basis because every president ought to recognize these things around the calendar. No, I agree. But th- it's indicative of this particular White House. This White House has been... Uh, slow at communicating at best. And when they do, it's typically tone deaf. On even the small issues and the really big issues, I mean, look look at what we saw uh, with the Middle East going on. Look at what we saw at the State of the Union address. I mean, for a guy who's a, an unbelievable communicator, he's really a terrible communicator. Well, you know, I, I, I do believe that the president is a phenomenal communicator. I mean, as a man and as a president, I think he has... Uh, you know, such strength at that. Um, you know, for people who are listening to to Polyoptics and on a regular basis here on POTUS on Sirius XM, you know that Josh King and I talk about this a lot. But you bring up a very good point, Tom. Um, it took a real long time for the president to take the podium and address the nation on what was going on in the Middle East, in Egypt, and in Libya. And there was a sense that even though there was reporting and great evidence that the president was highly engaged and there was so much going on, what people saw were, were, were evidence to the contrary. Right. And you, doing you, could go back, you, could, you could go back to BP. You could go to the economy. You could go to the, the latest jobs. You could go to the, uh, you know, the Fed. You could talk about all of these things that he, that, that he seems to be slow out of the gate. The question that I have and I think I know the answer to because I've worked around it long enough, is how proactive does this president need to be within his own administration? Who does he need to grab and shake and say, I want to know when things happen? What do you think, Josh? Uh, Is he not... I mean, these things may be an oversight. It may be poor communication. It it could be a lot of things, but the American public is just left to their own devices to... You know, digest the the polyoptics of the situation, and they're not getting a fair shake. Well, Adam, we've talked about this. I, I think that what's important are the outcomes, and if the if the process by which the outcomes are achieved are a little messy, uh, at the end of the day, the, President Obama is only going to face one important referendum, which is November two thousand uh, November twenty twelve, and you know these things are not easy to work through. They are hard. And the implications of giving out more words or more imagery in any kind of a premature way, despite the criticism that they will get for being uncommunicative, is perhaps less than the risk of being overly communicative and perhaps jumping the gun and doing something that they would regret. So I admit that that they are probably... Uh, wishing that they had communicated more in certain instances and at certain times. But at the end of the day, when you're dealing with foreign policy, you must dot your I's, cross your T's, and look for the outcomes that you want to achieve. And at the end, and the American people are going to get a chance to vote on this, and it's going to be in November 2012. There was a bit of political commentary from Andrew Malcolm that uh, I thought was interesting, and I think, you know, there's a lot in there. It was in the in the Los Angeles Times, and there's a lot in there that I think is uh, going. Uh, uh, some would say a bit overboard. Some would say way overboard. But uh, it, there's it's all a perception reality game, and the perception of the public as influenced by what is now becoming a increasingly heated political cauldron. And because we start to gin up 2012, uh, you know, leaves you wondering why on Earth Day. The president is flying across the nation, burning jet fuel, 
uh, going to do, uh, you know, fundraisers on the West Coast. Well, that's, just, a, that's a great point, Adam, because we know a lot more about the president's schedule. We hear more about that than we hear about the president's policy in crisis situations. In the absence of good information, any information will do, and people make stuff up. I will bet you $1,000 that you're going to see a TV commercial this election period by some Republican candidate that says when jobs were at stake, the president shot two over par. And when the Middle East was burning, he raised $15,000. What's the president doing when crisis hits America? not what you want him to do yeah I, i'm telling you josh this is exactly what i'm i'm, I'm trying to get at and tom gives sort of gave it better voice than i do but I, I feel like this argument that you're making and i believe it's true and i know that what you are saying is factually correct and i appreciate the the vantage point that you bring to it having been inside the white house and served president clinton as long and as well as you did uh that the flip side is just that all of these elements are just fodder for people to start slapping the president around in political campaigns. Well, it may be a new age. And we just finished and we talked to David Hume Kennerly today about what it, what it was like to cover the president's past. And covering a president today when everyone can snap a picture with their cell phone and there's so little that can be done behind closed doors makes it awfully difficult to be the president. But as I've said on this show before, the president can multitask. And if you think about what this president does and how much time this president spends on the clock versus what his predecessor, the time the president's predecessor president spent in Crawford, President Reagan spent in Santa Barbara, uh, and and indeed President Clinton and the times that he took off, it's just an unfortunate consequence of technology in, in today's coverage that this president isn't working any less than his predecessors. It's just that it's covered more. And is that a problem of the president or is that the problem of the people around him? Shouldn't the people on in his staff be aware that this is the way we communicate Well, uh, This is the way things get out. Shouldn't somebody be tasked with saying, okay, you got to get something out even if it says we're working on it? I'm sure this president is as observant and, and reflective of Earth Day as anybody else. But to say that he can't take a trip on Earth Day uh, – and use the only means of transportation available to him versus ride a bike across the country. (laughs) It's unrealistic. And uh, this White House, this president's can't walk on eggshells. They've just got to do what they've got to do. I'll tell you what, I'll cut you the break that you want on this, and I will agree to what you've just said, but it's adding up. And I think uh, from an optics perspective, there needs to be a little bit of realignment. But, uh, you know, time will tell on all of these things. Um, You know, when we talk about polyoptics, though, uh, one of the things that's really and truly important for the leadership of the President of the United States is when we are a nation in crisis. And just this week, we, we have seen some of the worst outbreaks of storms and tornadoes. We've got what, what is being billed as uh, a 40-year or, or more event with hundreds of Americans killed. And the president quickly, I think to his credit, Josh, uh, changed his his plans for the end of the week, made a stop to get on the ground and see what was going on, to share his support, to be the mourner and the consoler-in-chief and to do what he felt was important as he was going to do something that no other president uh, since Bill Clinton did, which was to go and be a part of a shuttle launch. That's right. Uh, president Clinton certainly realized the the power of imagery and polyoptics uh, and was quick to go to um, 
locations of natural and man-made disaster around the country, and we know many instances of that, whether it's Oklahoma City or the floods in Iowa or tornadoes across the southeast. And uh, uh, it's so important to show the empathy that the, that the president, that only the president can, can show uh, at times like this. And then also important, as we close the chapter on space exploration of the space shuttle that first took off in, I think, 1981, that he be there to watch uh, one of these final launches and to be able to do it with Gabrielle Giffords as she watches her husband rocket into space. I don't think you can compare the two events, and I think the White House made a really good move to sidetrack the president. Uh, I think this president will do more of that, and quite frankly, I think he'll do more of that because it's campaign season and it's good for him to be seen presidential. Uh, I think it was opportunistic at the at the time. A good uh, a good play, but I don't think it's in his natural bent. I don't think he would have gone to either event if he didn't just announce that he's rerunning for president and the campaign starts now and he's trying to raise money because that's what he's looking for most of. He's looking for quality face time. You know, I was just uh, pointing over at uh, Catherine Caperton, who is our incredibly capable and wonderful producer here on Polyoptics on POTUS. And uh, there was a video that was released uh, by the Obama campaign. It is underway. We are uh, set up in Chicago with a former deputy chief of staff to the president, uh, Mr. Messina, who is now the uh, chairman of that campaign. And here's what he said to supporters around the nation this week via YouTube. I want to listen to it, and then let's talk about uh, where we are in message testing and some of the polyoptics involved in this upcoming campaign. Hey, everybody. This is Jim Messina, President Obama's campaign manager in the 2012 campaign. You know, as the president does his day job, he needs all of us around the country to take the reins of this grassroots operation and build this together. And as you have that conversation at the local levels through the I'm In campaign, we have a set of shared beliefs and shared values that we'll use to bind us together and that we'll use to build this campaign. So as we start, I wanted to take a minute to give you our strategic framework for the campaign and tell you where we think things are today and the challenges. That okay, so Musina goes on YouTube, which is a great way, in my personal opinion, I love to use it, to communicate with folks. And he goes on to talk about, Josh and Tom, the grassroots movement and the all-in uh, campaign. They're really testing messages right now, as they should be. But Lord knows, this campaign has to be manifestly different than the 08 campaign, if for no other reason than the change that he called for at this point would mean changing him. Yeah, it would be a tactical error to run on the message of change, I think, for the president at this point. Uh, I don't think they're looking to uh, I think they're looking to radically change, uh, but they want to have the same feel. They want to make it feel like it's, uh, you know, the two dollar and three dollar donations that drive them. To, they want to make it feel like it's a movement, a groundswell of public, even though they did a really good job making it feel like that. And to some degree, it was that way in 2008. This is a campaign that strength was and will be its ability to raise cash. It is a money machine. They put money on the air at an alarming rate. They outspend everybody and they're going to do it again, and that's why they're going to be successful. All the other stuff around it, the grassroots effort, the feeling of a movement, the home parties, all of that stuff is ancillary. The ground war is important, but when it comes to these types of campaigns, it's the air war, and that comes from money and lots of it. Josh, you're no stranger to a presidential campaign. What do you think? Yeah, what they've got to do is uh, 
establish a level of consistency of message, of look, of polyoptic presentation, as we've said. I think they also have the luxury, as we've talked about before, of being somewhat conservative and letting whatever the Republican field, however it materializes and then winnows, uh, fight themselves out, expend their own resources fighting against each other, and, and see who is standing at the Republican nomination. So they do have this luxury of incumbency, the power of the image when Air Force One descends on any particular media market. And uh, and whenever the president decides to go off on official duties, as he is doing in Alabama, as he will at Cape Canaveral, to mix that with political efforts as well, it doesn't uh, take a whole lot to have another hop onto Miami to a large fundraising opportunity. And so these are the, the these are the special powers of incumbency that makes it really difficult to knock off a, a president after a first term that most people will think is, is, has been a success. Yeah, you know, we talked about this with, uh, with uh, Ed Gillespie uh, on an earlier episode of this broadcast, Polyoptics, here on POTUS. Uh, Tom Mosloom uh, from the M Network, let me ask you, uh, Josh King points out rightly that this consistent uh, and well-developed uh, polyoptic or uh, visual presence that's required uh, in the messaging and presenting this campaign is something that I think, and we've talked about this before, uh, that this, this White House, this administration has not done uh, very much of so far. And so they're getting back into something they did so well in 2008, which is messaging and set design and consistency of, of the visual presentation. Talk to me for a second about uh, how critical that is and, and, and why you think uh, they need to get this stuff done early uh, in order to, to make hay while the Republicans beat each other up in a primary fight. Well, you're going to have the opportunity to get out there and start messaging exactly like you said, while there is no other competitor other than the imaginary competitor. So you're not going to have an individual messaging against you very clearly. So you get to make your brand before anybody else. If these guys could get out there with test messaging like they're doing right now, like this uh, this email that went out on the 25th from Messina, uh, look for more stuff to be going out, look for more videos to be released. They're going to try to clear up their messaging, uh, messaging I think, by about October early part of November, and then they're just going to beat it over your head until the Republicans select their candidate. That's when you're going to see the fun begin and when that messaging is going to have to be a little more fluid. Up until that November time, I think I think you're going to see a lot of test balloons out there, and you're going to have guys like me on the air going, oh, I can't believe they said that, or wait a minute, hang on a second, that, that one might stick. But uh, they were so strong in the last election with the change Washington, uh, with the hope for the future type of messaging. Uh, and the, 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 the tough part for them is they're not going to be able to duplicate that messaging, so they have to find out what's going to stick. Josh, uh, you're conspicuously silent. What do you think about this? Well, no, I think Tom hit it right in the head. I, I think it, what we're facing so far in 2012 is a Republican field that may not provide a lot of competition um, until the very end. We we saw Haley Barber uh, pull out this week. We're still waiting for the field to actually materialize. Far- yeah, let's stop right there for a second because you bring up a great point, uh, and you're so you're so spot on with that. It could be right down to the very end before they really, uh, as long as the money's there. Uh, make this so competitive but let can we talk about Haley Barber and the way that he got out Josh what what was your your take on that 
Well, it was sort of, uh, it died with a whimper, I think, Adam. We, the, Haley Barber has crafted a, a wonderful career in Washington and then is in his uh, time as governor. And I think he he had an opportunity to uh, have a, a, a great Southern can, uh, candidacy from a Southern candidate that we haven't seen in, in quite some time. And he had been spending quite some time uh, traveling to Iowa and New Hampshire, testing the waters, and then suddenly it ended. And I, I guess it, at least it ended before uh, he spent a lot more time or money the way Fred Thompson's campaign ended. But uh, I was disappointed because I think he would have led, uh, lent a lot of color to this to this race. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think he'd have been a, a good candidate. I'm not necessarily sure he would have been the best candidate. And I think probably what happened to his campaign is they started polling him against some of the other candidates and said, you know, you're really a middle-of-the-pack guy. In order to get to the top of the pack guy, you're going to have to spend an awful lot of dough and an awful lot of time not doing what you want to do but being here candidating. And uh, and that's going to take its toll. I think he said it's not worth it to me. Tom, from from your perch in Miami, I'm curious about what you think the impact Marco Rubio has had in his time in office so far. And if you think of the impression that Barack Obama made early on as a state senator from Illinois running for the U.S. Senate and the speech that he gave to the 2004 convention, and by 2008 he finds himself the president of the United States, do you see another Obama beginning to emerge from Florida? He is a force of nature. There's no doubt about it. He's a, he's a really good candidate. He he's uh, well looked upon uh, in this state by both Republicans and Democrats. He's taken some pretty interesting stands with regard to the Tea Party. Won't caucus with him once it is a movement. It's not a political party. I think that's wise. I think that that shows him as being level-headed. Even if you look at the Tea Party and go, man, oh man, oh man, oh man, uh, whew, that's an issue. You're looking at a guy who goes, no, no, I'm, I'm with them. I understand what they believe. They've got a lot, but I'm not going to dive in there. And if you're a Tea Party guy, you're saying, yeah, maybe he's got a point there. We should be a movement. Uh, he's good looking. He's articulate. Uh, I think he's got a very, very powerful future. I don't think he's getting into this race. Um, but I would, it wouldn't shock me at all to see him on a ticket. Right. But if you think of the strategy of Obama in 2004, he knew he he wasn't going to be in that race either. That was John Kerry's to fight against George W. Bush. But you begin to make your presence felt four years in advance. And who knows, by uh, January uh, 2013, uh, another race will be on. Yeah. Unless there's unless there's a Republican president, in which That's case right. uh, he'll he'll sit down and wait his turn. That's right. All right. I'll tell you what. This is a conversation we're going to have time and time again here. Tom Mosloom is a voice I hope that we will be bringing to you on Polyoptics, uh, especially because of his political savvy and acumen, but the fact that he brings uh, a different perspective from a different part of this country, and uh, we have yet to even broach the politics and the imagery surrounding certain quadrants of the uh, electorate, especially the Hispanic <laughs> vote. But uh, Tom Mosloom, thanks for being with us here on Polyoptics. Thank you, man. Really appreciate it. Josh, good meeting you. You too, Tom. Take care. Another great episode of Polyoptics, Josh. Uh, the, the politics and the campaign strategies are starting to bubble up everywhere. But what people see and how they think about people in the formative stages of this campaign are going to have lasting impressions, aren't they? They are. You know, we, we, we think that the presidential campaign really hasn't got underway because there are so few announced candidates in the field. And less than a year away is the New Hampshire primary and the Iowa caucus. It's going to happen next January, whether 
America likes it or not. And so uh, very quickly, we're going to be at, at, uh, into the summer and into Labor Day, and this thing is going to begin, going to be going at full speed before we know it. Some of the best political operatives, some of the people who have created some of the greatest imagery, headlines, um, and positioning for their candidates will be guests on this show. Josh King in New York. I'm Adam Belmar in Washington. Thank you for joining us on Polyoptics here on POTUS. POTUS.